Welcome to The Jay Davis Show. Today, I'll be co-hosting with my friend, Jess Larson. Jess, do you want to kick us off? Today on the show, we've got Peter Harris, founding partner at U Growth Fund. Peter, thanks for making time. Thanks for having me. So for people who aren't familiar with the fund or, or don't know about your background, can you give us a 30-second ele- elevator pitch on each? Sure. So University Growth Fund, we started a little over four years ago. We're kind of a unique venture fund. So it's a, it's a $32 million fund. Our investors include a lot of large institutions like American Express, Ally Bank, and, and as well as high net worth individuals. And on that side of the, the fund, we make growth stage investments. So as early as your first institutional round, all the way up to pre-IPO, and our investments cover a pretty broad range of sectors and stages and industries. Everything from Spotify and Snapchat on one side to really early stage startups and enterprise software and fintech on the other side. So that's one side of the fund. And then the other side of the fund is the university piece. So we're not part of a university, nor do we fund university startups. Instead, we have 30 to 40 students from various universities in Utah and also in San Diego, where we have a satellite office. Those students, we put them through a rigorous training program, but then ultimately we kind of turn the reins over to them. They do all the due diligence on our deals. They play a key role in making investment decisions. And then post-investment, they help our portfolio companies with a variety of different projects. You know, when I meet with an entrepreneur, usually they're trying to get 100 things done. We're really good at helping not with the top 50 items, but like the bottom 50 items, you know, where it'd be nice to be able to throw some stuff at a team of really smart, you know, bright students to crank on it for you. So that's a little bit about our fund. I grew up in upstate New York, came out to Utah to go to school, always been kind of an entrepreneur at heart. I got involved with a predecessor fund to this called the University Venture Fund as a student, eventually came on full-time, ran that fund for about eight years altogether. And then my partner and I spun out of that fund to launch this one a little four to five years ago. And I've been having a blast ever since. That's fun. You know, with the show Innovation and Leadership, just a title like that, what's the first things that come to mind? I mean, your world needs so much of both of those things. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really deep, interesting, broad question. Innovation and Leadership. So... You know, there are so many different ways that you could look at that, right? We think about like one area where our industry, in particular venture capital, needs leadership is improving diversity, right? And so even though I'm not, you know, very diverse being a white male, we do a lot of things to try to improve diversity in our industry. So we do a lot of events to try to attract women to the field. We do different case competitions and other things to kind of broaden the message of what venture capital is and how it works. And in terms of just trying to get people to think beyond just it's hardcore finance, but really it's a lot more than that, right? And you're kind of predicting the future and you're understanding how people buy things and sell things and how business models are structured and how markets ebb and flow and mature and develop and change. And so, you know, what we found is that when you can expose more people to those types of attributes about the industry, a lot more people are interested, right? And I think, you know, shows like Shark Tank have definitely kind of helped bridge a little bit of that, but you know, we're trying to do it in a little more structured environment for education purposes. And, you know, and trying to be different. You know, the other thing with innovation that's interesting, at least from how we approach it as a fund, is you want to be different, but you also want to be you want to be kind of be pushing the envelope of what's possible, right? And 
you know, if you think about venture capital in general, you know, there's never been a better time to start a company. And the reason for that is because there's just so much capital available. So many funds have raised so much money. And what's ended up happening is because the internet has really democratized a lot of things and it's easier now than ever before for investors to invest in startups outside of where they're located, capital is becoming more and more fungible. And it's harder to determine, like, is this fund going to do anything better for me than another fund? And it's more and more important to have something unique about you, right? That's another thing that we think about as we're raising this next fund is one, you know, we feel like we are pretty unique given our student structure, but how can we further expand that and add more value to the entrepreneurs we work with and be a unique value-added partner beyond just you know, the capital piece of what we do. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is as you look at, or as I was looking through who you guys have invested in, you've invested in a lot of great companies. You've made a lot of really smart investments that proved to be very profitable, hopefully, <laughs> down the road. But yeah, as you look at an entrepreneur, as you're interviewing them, are there any things that you're kind of highlighting or focusing on that stand out for you, whether it's team dynamics or, yeah. So one of the things, th there's a few things that I look for in every deal. So one is I want to understand the pain point, like viscerally, like I want to like feel it, if that makes sense. And I meet with a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of the times it's hard to like really feel what that pain point is and clearly like there there must be a pain point because these people have dedicated their lives to it but it i need to be able to like feel that right and then i need to be able to feel that like their solution is the right solution to that pain point right and then just because you have identified a pain point and you have a solution you think is going to work really well like how are you going to then do it in such a way that nobody else can kind of copy you right which one, if I'm solving a major pain point, I'm creating a lot of value, right? But I still have to be able to capture that value. And the only way I can really capture the majority of that value is if I can create some sort of remote, right? Some sort of barrier from other people stealing away my margin, essentially, at the end of the day. So those are generally like the things we look for. We're, we're a co-investment firm too. So we don't lead rounds. We try to partner with other great venture funds and, and invest alongside them. and so. You know, investing alongside really great investors and partners is also super important to us, right? Because we're kind of dependent on them as a smaller investor riding alongside them. So it's also pretty important to us. Yeah. And kind of going back to what you were saying with those first principles, it's interesting that, that you kind of talk about these key like pain, problem, solution. As you look at that with an entrepreneur, are there anything times where that maybe feels right? but that you decide not to go through with it or or maybe that's still a little fuzzy and you decide to invest for other reasons. Are, are there any th times you've had or experiences you've had where you've made an exception to that and it's worked out or maybe not worked out that you can think of? I would say more often than not, I want to invest in every company that I meet, right? Probably part of the reason that I have a healthy addiction on Kickstarter because it's an opportunity for me to kick a little bit of money into a company without having to make the commitment as a fund, right? An equity investor. Usually what ends up killing deals for us is if you've got a great pain point that you are solving and we believe you're solving it in the right way, and there, yeah, we can envision how over time you will build some sort of barrier to entry, the things that ultimately kill it at that point are you may not be the right team to do it, right? 
So it might be this like team problem fit issue, or it might just be too early for us. So we look at a lot of stuff that's just ultimately too early that we're super excited about. We want to see it succeed, but at the end of the day, we're not a seed fund. You know, we don't make bets that early. And so, you know, we'll sit and watch and see how things develop. And, you know, frankly, like we've missed out on some really great companies that, you know, we passed on in the very early stage because it was just too early for us. And then it just kind of got away from us before we could catch it. But, you know, the flip side is like I've made some exceptions and we've done some early stage seed investing and it's really risky and it doesn't always pan out. And so that's why we try to stick to our strategy of kind of investing when a company is really proven that they are solving the pain point in a meaningful way. And usually that's demonstrated by doing kind of in the range of one to $2 million in revenue, right? Really establishing that product market fit before we get involved. So I kind of want to go the other direction now. That's for companies seeking investment from you. What about the other direction? You know, for folks who are looking to raise a fund, what kind of principles have you learned from, from your experience? I like to joke that raising a fund is really challenging because... You're basically going to individuals and saying, hey, give me your money. I will do a better job investing it than you will. I don't know what I'm going to invest it in yet, but it's probably going to be like some crazy early stage stuff that like any normal person would look at and and think is just a crazy idea. But, you know, trust me, like it's going to pan out great. Right. And so as we went through the fund fundraising process, like I was really nervous because basically we were, we were spinning out of university venture fund and launching this brand new fund. And I had no idea if it was going to work. I bought a house right. And when we left and like, literally like the, the documents, you know, had one job at one firm when I started the, the loan paperwork and I had a job at another firm when it ended. And so I was like super stressed of whether or not this was going to end up working. And so we went through the process And I think the thing that stood out to me the most is because there's so much trust involved, you really have to have great relationships. And so when we looked at or when we would meet with investors, the ones that we had the deepest relationships with were the fastest to make commitments. And not only that, but then we leveraged their relationships to bring in other investors, both on the institution side So we had an investor on the institution side that helped us put on a lunch. And we invited a bunch of other institutions that were just like them, that they were their friends, basically, to this lunch and gave them the pitch. And then there was all this like social, you know, proof and feedback that was really helpful. And then on the individual side, it was the same thing. So, you know, we reached out to a lot of the individuals that knew us and knew us best and got them on board and then leveraged them to bring in kind of friends and family. And and I think really that's, that's the way you have to do it until you've got I don't know, probably two, three, four funds under your belt, or you're a big name like Mark Andreessen, right? And you can just pick up the phone and call your friends and fill out a full fund and over a phone call. But yeah, I mean, we're we're finishing our first fund. You know, we've been fortunate enough to make a handful of great investments that we're super excited about and had some great liquidity already. And we're going out to raise our second fund. And my, our hope is that over time we can establish that track record. So hopefully it gets easier and we can bring in new people but you know you're always fundraising as a as a fund manager just like being an entrepreneur at the end of the day and it's turned out to be a lot more relationship driven than i would have anticipated rather than core hard returns and numbers and those kinds of things when you think about that you get a relationship started maybe through a friend or or someone you know in common but then you still need to build that relationship what are some of the principles for you when you're starting a new relationship with someone that you're hoping to have 
you know, have them be a long-term LP? I think a lot of it is engaging with them, adding value to what they're doing, keeping them abreast of what you're up to, and creating opportunities for them to get involved. So I'll give you an example. We have one LP that we met with before, you know, a couple of years before we ever raised the fund. And he sits on the board of an institution back east. And we did a lot of things to try to help give him feedback because he wanted to create a similar type program at his school. And so we tried to be really helpful through all of that. And just over time, kind of trying to add value to that relationship, he ended up investing in our fund, right? So that's an example. Another example is our very first investment was in Lyft. And at the time, we had a little bit of extra allocation. So we reached out to all the people in our network that we liked and gave them the opportunity to invest alongside us in that deal. And and I think most of them ended up coming into the fund ultimately, right? So just kind of giving opportunities and, and showing those people like, Hey, yeah, not only are we like great people, but we also have great access to great deals and, and, you know, we're willing to share without, you know, charging any sort of fees or anything like that to build that relationship. So that's awesome. As you work with startups, what do you think is the biggest challenge most startups are facing, especially maybe something that most people who haven't been entrepreneur may be surprised by? Yeah, I mean, it's so specific to the company, but I think the biggest challenges that I've seen is that marketing is really hard and closely tied to that, in my opinion, is getting like really great people on board. I think it's hard to find people that that know what they're doing and especially in kind of on the marketing side of things. I think if we were to ask most of our portfolio companies at this point, especially today, they wouldn't say like raising capital is the hardest thing. They'd say like finding rock stars, you know, to bring on the team is one of the hardest things. Why do you think kind of both of those issues, why do you think those are such big challenges, especially for startups? Is it just the landscape? I'd just be curious to hear what your thoughts are on why that's such an obstacle for most companies. Right now, if you think about it, the economy has been doing so well for so long. Unemployment's like super low. And so, and there are a lot of great opportunities out there. So, you know, opportunity cost is really high for somebody that's really good in order to bring them on. And they can make a lot of money at a bigger firms, right? So you have to be able to make kind of a a strong pitch across a variety of different metrics, whether it's like culture and pay and, you know, future potential and learning and growth. So I think that's part of it. I think the other thing is, is that things change so fast. You could have been like the world's greatest marketer five years ago. And like a lot of those same skills aren't really relevant anymore. Certainly some are, but a lot aren't. And so if you're not constantly like growing and innovating and learning and pivoting, right, yourself, like it's hard to keep up. And so, you know, for example, in the last couple of years, you guys have probably seen this, like paid socials, really tough, really expensive compared to what it used to be like, right? It used to be like, you just throw up a web, you know, (laughs) throw up some ads and like, boom, you're good. And we're seeing across our entire portfolio, like a lot of our companies have had to pivot their their social strategy because that doesn't work anymore, right? For example, you know, there's a company we're looking at right now in the consumer product space that had a ton of success around influencers and paid social. And, you know, in the last year or so, that's kind of struggled for them. And so they made a very conscious move to, to go back into retail which was never part of the plan, right? But what they're finding is retail is a really good place to actually educate customers, right? And, and in of itself is good marketing 
for for their particular case. So yeah, so I think those are like some of the big the big reasons why why those two things are a pretty big challenge. Personally, I, I'm very passionate about is that space of of how to continually innovate. As you look at kind of the past couple of years where we've even seen that shift from three years ago, four years ago, if you were going into Facebook ads or social ads, you were being an innovator. And now people are jumping into it and expecting that same return. It's just not there because now everyone is there. Yep. What do you think are some of the new spaces or are there ways you're helping your portfolio companies start to think about, hey, that's no longer a blue ocean. So you need to look elsewhere. Is there something that you try to help them see a new strategy or is there something, some emerging strategy that you're excited about coming like retail for that one group? Is there something else that you're seeing in the space? I think like one of the things that we've noticed is really important, especially if, if you're the demographic you're selling to as millennials, is creating some sort of experience around whatever it is you're marketing. So that could be through a, a retail-like experience, that could be that through pop-up stores, that could be through video, that could be through having a really personalized, customized drip campaign that makes them feel like you actually care about them and know them and their particular circumstances. And so, like, you know, we look and, and encourage our, our companies to, to pursue those types of strategies because we think at the end of the day, consumers, especially millennials, want to have this, like, personal connection with the brands that they buy from, right? They want to, when they buy that product, they want it to bring an experience with them, right? And, I mean, this is kind of top of mind because this cons the same consumer products company, the product they sell, the customers that buy from them report back that, like, one of the reasons they love the product is they feel like they're on a vacation when when they're using it, right? It's it's again, it's that experience, and and yeah, it's a great product, and yeah, it's got great packaging and great marketing, but at the end of the day, like it's that experience that they're after, right? And so it's just trying to figure out like what's the right way to to package that experience given the brand or the company that you're trying to push, right? Can you talk a little bit about? Your experience with Snapchat and the university students and the voting? Sure, sure. So we had this opportunity to look at, at Snapchat. And, you know, we were super pumped about it because it was a big brand. And this was about a year before they went public. So definitely a growth stage deal. And at the time, very expensive, you know, across any way that you would measure it because they just weren't generating a lot of revenue yet. But the revenue growth was, was really, really fast. And it was interesting. So the way our model works is we have the students, they do all the due diligence, and we'll have a team that's worked on the diligence, and they pitch it to all the other students. So every student has the opportunity to vote on whether or not we do the deal. And if they approve it, then it goes to our investment committee for final approval. And so anyways, so the team pitched it, and when it came time to vote, the vast majority of students voted against the deal. We were really surprised. We were like, really? Like, I went around the room and I was like, okay, I want everybody to raise their hand if they use Snapchat. And remember, this was like the heyday of Snapchat. I know nobody really uses it today, but at the time, everybody used it. And every single hand went up. And then I was like, okay, well, how many of you think you'll be using Snapchat like five to 10 years from now and every hand stayed up, right? And and they just saw it as like this social utility that they were going to continue to use for a long period of time. And so then I was like, well, why are you all a no on the investment, right? I mean, it's not a fad and you, you don't think it's a fad. And their response was like, well, you know, given the valuation, the price, we just don't think we're going to get a very good return on it. And, and that's why we should pass. So ultimately, we, my partner and I came back and we we're like, look, 
maybe your returns expectations are a little too high in this particular case, right? Because if you think about why venture funds make investments, it's not always about the return. Sometimes there can be some ancillary benefits. And for us in this case, being able to invest in Snapchat was really helpful because it would help us recruit more students. It gave us some credibility because we were super early in the fund. I mean, we hadn't made very, made very many investments. And so it gave us a little bit of credibility of like, hey, yeah, we can get access to great deals, which helped us get into other deals ultimately. And so there was a lot of value. And so once the students kind of understood, one, there were all these other sources of value. And two, we didn't need to make 10 times our money to you know justify doing the deal. They ended up voting to do it. And as it turned out, right, I mean, they, they were kind of right in a lot of ways and that, you know, we didn't make 10 times our investment on that you know it went public we did okay but if you know you were looking at it from their their point of view which was all the training we put into them around you know you got to hit these kind of metrics it didn't it didn't necessarily hit those and so you know it was a good example of like hey you know students are pretty bright and they can work work things out and figure things out but it was also interesting because on the one hand they were like no let's not invest even though they were all like diehard users at the time of the product are there any examples that you can think about with marketing campaigns that you've kind of observed from the outside perspective with one of your portfolio companies that has really stood out as an innovative approach to marketing, something that that was really different and, and stand out? Yeah. So there's a company right now that we're looking at investing in that I really like. And what they do is, so they sell they sell marketing software essentially to SMB. But the challenge, if you think about selling to SMB is twofold. So one, it's really hard because your customer acquisition cost can be really high on a per customer basis, but then they don't pay you a lot of money. And then they're small businesses. So like, even if they love your product, they might go out of business. And so you're, you lose customers more frequently, right? So you have high churn. What this company is doing, and then I guess the last piece is, and when you layer on the marketing piece of it, is that like so much marketing feels like fluff. And it's hard to show like a clear ROI for dollars spent on marketing. And so what this company has done that I think is super interesting is they've focused on doing really deep integrations with a few partners. And then that, those integrations allow them to have this feedback loop where they can show really clear ROI. And then not only to the customer, but also to the partner. And so then the partner becomes highly incentivized to do a lot of the marketing and sales for them and push them a lot of customers, which in turn reduces their CAC. So anyways, I just think it's like a really interesting strategy that, that maybe not a lot of people would think about in terms of working with partners and having really deep relationships where you're sharing data back and forth and really creating win-win opportunities. So anyways, that, that's one that recently that I, that I thought was, was pretty smart in terms of how they put it all together. And just for people who aren't as familiar with those, you know, SMB, small, medium business, CAC for customer acquisition cost, right? Yep. On that premise, how important is it to you that investors are signaling kind of a sophistication that they're using that type of terminology or stuff like what does that signal to you when founders are using the metrics the way the industry does or not it's one of those funny things every industry has its jargon and and it's a way in which people in the industry are able to gauge or you know they do gauge or judge people of whether or not they are in the industry as well. And so, you know, just like if I show up in a law firm and I don't use the right terminology, it becomes really apparent that I am not a lawyer. You know, I would say if you want to play in this game, you kind of need to learn the jargon and know the terminology because otherwise you'll come off as being, you know, somebody that for better or worse doesn't, you're going to be viewed as someone that doesn't belong there. 
Does that make sense? Which is not what you want, right? You want to come off as being credible, experienced, you know, you're on top of your game. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of jargon. But you know, fortunately, there's a lot of great blogs, podcasts like this, right, that that can help you develop that vocabulary so that you sound competent when you meet with investors. And then specifically talking about marketing, what kind of things signal to you that the founders are more than just somebody who can create a product? That is it is it only track record or what kind of things are you looking for in their ability to for you to think, okay, these people can scale? Yeah. So for me, for a founder, can they attract really great people at the end of the day? To me, like that is like the most important thing to a certain extent, because as a founder, you can't be an expert in everything, but you you better be able to attract the experts that are right and build build them around you, fill in your gaps, if you will, with great people. And that can be really tough. But the founder that can do that can ultimately build like really great big businesses, in our opinion. You know, I think track record is important. But I think the other piece is being able to understand a market really well and understand kind of how are you going to to solve whatever their pain is. And, And that can be beyond like, I have a product that solves a pain, but like marketing in of itself is a solution to pain, right? I You're educating somebody. Like good marketing is educating somebody, right? And helping them see how like your product could add a lot of value to their lives, right? And so every industry is a little bit different, right? In terms of how you want to approach it from a marketing perspective. But having an entrepreneur that understands that at a deep level, I think is is really valuable. Yeah. I want to go back to something you, you said earlier, and I th- I, I'm also a really big fan of first principle thinking and, and try to help my team as we try and come up with campaigns for clients and as we're trying to help market people to really go back to like, what are the core ideas that we know are? And you mentioned that you, that's one of your challenges in working with college students is sometimes you have to train out of them some of these things that they've started to assume. What are some of those things that you found works best in helping people to kind of get over their assumptions and get back to these core principles? What's interesting is that when students join our fund, they come in and generally they think every idea is a great idea, right? Yeah. It's, it's all good, right? Wow, that's so cool. Like, let, look what they're doing with this like crazy technology, right? Like they're using like big data machine learning to like solve cancer and identify cancer like in its very early stages. Like, let's give them all of our money, right? And then you train them and you teach them and you're like, look, let's, yeah, that's a cool technology. And, and hopefully that comes to light at some point. But here are all the challenges to get that from idea to market, right? And by the way, it's not just that company that's doing it. There are all these other companies. So you got to look at like all of these other areas that also matter. It's not just the idea, right? It's the team. It's the technology. It's the patents. It's the relationships. It's the partnerships. It's, you know, all just the funding. It's all of those things. And so what ends up happening is we, we basically instill them with all this knowledge and then everything looks like a terrible deal. Every deal is bad, right? And so they go through this this curve of like, everything's amazing, let's invest, and everything to everything sucks. And like, <laughs> like there are no good deals. And, uh, you know, you think about it, it's ultimately true. Like, I can give you like a million reasons to kill just about any deal that you put in front of us, right? Like, because they're just risks. That's, that's part of, the, that's part of the, the game. And if there were, are no risks, then there's no returns because everybody else is fighting to get in the deal and the price has gone up so that you can't make any money on it. And so 
then it's this challenge of like getting students to realize that yes, and there are risks, but in spite of the risks, venture capital is all about pricing risk, right? It's all about saying, okay, yes, there is this risk. Does the potential return justify making the risk, you know, taking on that risk, right? And ultimately what we found works really well is just looking at lots of deals and then and having some sort of feedback loop, right? So it's like, here's a deal, we passed on it, it went out of business. Why did it go out of business? You know, identify those key risks, right? But then alternatively, you know, we make an investment or we don't make an investment, the company ends up being successful. We look back, why was that company successful, right? And helping them close that feedback loop and, and hopefully learn from that. So that when they look at new companies, they can approach it hopefully more from that, that level of first principles and experience, which is like, hey, look, Yes, there was this big risk that the current business model wouldn't work, but the team was really strong and we had faith that the team would figure out the right business model. And and they did, and that's why I ended up becoming successful. Right. It's interesting because I see such a strong tie to marketing where so many times there isn't a feedback loop. I think that's almost what's so challenging about it is that many of the things that happen in a startup there is this very tight engineering, you know, operations. You kind of know where you're succeeding and where you're not. Where that doesn't exist, marketing is more soft skills combined with hard skills. Mm-hmm. What do you look for as as you're looking both in marketing but also with the rest of the team to kind of know that they're going to embrace the feedback? Is there certain characteristics that you're looking for? that you know they're going to be able to keep changing and adapting that you're trying to identify as you look at that investment? One is entrepreneurship is this really interesting dichotomy of having to be like hyper-focused, but also like flexible, right? I think Vinod Kosla said something like, you should be, you know, very flexible in terms of how you get there, but you should not compromise at all on like the end destination. And so it's, yeah, it's trying to tease out through your interactions and then viewing at their their track record and so forth. Like, does the team have that mentality of like, yes, we know where we're going. We have strong focus there. We're not going to get distracted by a million different shiny objects. But at the same time, we're very flexible in terms of how we end up getting to that end point, which, you know, again, it can be challenging because every company is a little bit different. And so you're just trying to, especially for us. I mean, we we invest, like I said at the beginning, like we do consumer products and consumer tech and enterprise software and fintech and like all kinds of different things. And each one of those operates within different markets with different dynamics. And so it's, we almost have to approach everything from first principles because like, you know, we're basically starting from scratch every time we look at a new deal, right? And, And trying to get up that learning curve. I guess part of it too that we look for are they like metric driven? So if they're if they're metric driven and they're constantly track tracking those metrics, then hopefully they can identify where they're going wrong early and start to shift and pivot their strategy and you know figure out what what does work for them. Is there and you may not be able to say this, and if so, we'll edit it out. But is there any company you can think of that you're like, man, I really wish I would have invested in that one, like kind of the one that got away? And now that you look back, is what do you learn in thinking, man, we should have done that investment? So there is a company that I really like that we didn't do, and I still kick myself that 
you know, we didn't do it in the shipping industry. So the company's called Easy Post. You can look them up. They're, they're a Y Combinator grad. Really cool company. What they do is they have a shipping API that makes it really easy for companies to send their package through the right shipping partners to get to the destination as quick and as cheaply as possible. And it's all software driven. And they are in the process, I mean, this isn't anything confidential, they're in the process leveraging all the technology they build on the software side and doing their own distribution as a 3PL, which in some ways is crazy because you've got warehouses, super, you go from software margins to like logistics margins, which are really small. There are all of these issues, right? But the thing that I think is interesting is that in, in venture startup land, there's kind of two different companies, right? So one company type is we are gonna build a tool for an industry, okay? And usually that software, enterprise software, a lot of those companies are like that, right? And, and easy post, was like that in their beginning, right? We have this software and we are going to sell it to other 3PLs, other, you know, whatever. We have a long list of customers. The other way to look at it is we're going to build this really great technology, but we're not going to sell it to anybody. We're going to bring it in-house and we're going to own it and we're going to leverage it as a competitive advantage. Now the and we're going to disrupt an entire industry. Right. And and we're an investor in a handful of companies that are doing that, right? Whether it's Flexport or Spotify or or Lyft or others. But it's hard because you have to raise a ton of money to do it. And it's the margins aren't great and it's not capital efficient. And you know, it's it's all of these things. And you have to I mean, you're competing against companies that are gigantic and have been around forever, right? I mean, if you look at Flexport, I mean they're competing against these gigantic companies worth tens of billions of dollars. Now, a good example of that, though, is Amazon. So if you look at the companies that are the biggest and most successful, they're the ones that disrupt entire industries, right, like in Amazon. Amazon does sell some of their products, but even more of their products that nobody ever talks about and knows about are the ones that they keep for themselves internally, right? So a good example of this is they bought a robotics company a number of years ago to help them with their, their warehouse you know, distribution. The company had a bunch of customers. They basically shut down all those customers, cut off access to the product, and brought it all in-house to bring, give themselves a, a huge competitive advantage. Right. So, you know, it's those kinds of things. They're really capital intensive and and risky in some regards. But then the outcome is you get companies like Amazon that could someday be worth, you know, a trillion dollars. And so when you look at like like a company like EasyPost, that was that's part of their play is they're trying to say, like, look, yeah, we could be a great little software company, but we want to be something big. We want to disrupt a whole industry. We want to go from, from, you know, maybe a couple billion dollar, you know, soft or shipping API market to the like trillion dollar, you know, 3PL market and start disrupting that. Right. So, you know, when we're looking at businesses, sometimes it's just trying to figure out like what bucket do they sit in and neither bucket is bad. Right. But it's just understanding both because on the one hand, if you're going to invest in the one that's going to disrupt a whole industry, you got to be ready to sign up to write a lot of checks, right? And put on a lot of capital and, and cross your fingers and hope they make it. Right? But on the other hand, on the software, but your outcomes can be huge. On the software side, they tend to be a lot more capital efficient, but your outcome won't be quite as big, right? I'm sure as founder of fund, you get a lot of people who want your time and have questions and stuff. I think about when, when we raised our fund, all of a sudden I became a lot more popular, <laughs> right? Maybe as a final question here, what's something that 
people don't ask you? What's something that you're passionate about that you think more people should ask you about or something that, that you just free for all question, free for all question, message for the world or something that, that you prefer to talk about that maybe we haven't covered? You know, a lot of people are surprised and find it interesting the consulting work I do. So about once a year, once or twice a year, I travel to some some locale around the world and do what's called micro-franchising consulting. So we help governments, nonprofits, large corporations launch micro-franchises at the bottom of the pyramid. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, beyond investing in companies and beyond running this fund, like it's a way for me to be a little more entrepreneurial because we basically parachute in to places like Paraguay or Ghana or Kenya, analyze markets, design businesses for the poor that they can operate, and then design them into a franchise and and then help our clients scale them. So can you give us a couple of examples? Yeah, so we did a project with the Nike Foundation in the slums of Nairobi, Kenya. And if you know anything about the Nike Foundation, they're very focused on girls. And so we were tasked with designing a handful of micro-franchises that could be operated by girls. So I spent a couple weeks, you know, roaming around the slums in Nairobi doing interviews, covering everything from sanitary pads to hair products to food. And then, you know, looking at products and market and talking to different business owners, we ultimately ended up launching two micro franchise businesses, one that sold or one that sells chicken based hot dogs, fast food. So it turns out fast food was, you know, in high demand. And then the other thing that I thought was super interesting is that these girls, they will go without food before they will go without a good looking hairdo. And which was a, like a huge surprise to us. What's interesting about that, just on a side tangent, is a lot of people will be like, well, you know, what they need is solar power or what they need is like better nutrition. But like, who are you to dictate what they need? Like they want to feel good about themselves and be self-confident, you know, and like and have this confidence and and look good. And like, that's a need and that's OK. So we designed, we partnered with one of the larger hair extension companies there, a company called Darling and set up these mini salons where the girls could weave hair and and sell the product. And it was all branded under Darling. And so they were able to leverage kind of the marketing and branding of the larger company, but run their own little businesses as well. That was an awesome story. We got to have one more of those. Got another one? <laughs> sure. So I'll tell you about like a, a project that we just finished in Paraguay. So we were working with Dacian Paraguaya and the Inter-American Development Bank. And uh, they wanted us to launch a bunch of micro franchises uh, down in Paraguay. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. So we, we identified three, we launched them, and one of them failed like immediately, like within a week or two, just boom, gone. And so we had to shut it down. And what was interesting to me about it was that I, we had done all the market analysis. Basically, the company was selling Chipa, which is this savory donut that's super popular staple down there. And there are people called chiperos that go around and they sell it and they typically wear like a white apron and they have a basket full of this stuff and they sell it in the buses and stuff. So we thought like, look, this is already being done. What we're going to bring to it is branding, quality. So like the chipa you get is the same always instead of like one tastes like chalk and the other one tastes really good. And you don't know if it was made in a sanitary conditions. or. And this will work really well because it's going to leverage all of the things that make franchises great, like consistency and branding and so forth. What we failed to really understand though was that the women that we were working with that were going to be the micro franchisees like had no interest in selling it 
And so even though I think ultimately it could have still been a, like a really interesting micro franchise, it like totally failed because, you know, shame on us. We didn't spend enough time really understanding, you know, our partners at the end of the day. Right. So we had to take a step back and we spent more time talking to them and understanding their needs and their their lifestyle and what their situation was. So a lot of these women, they have kids, they're managing a household, they're trying to earn some extra money on the side. They don't have time to go out and spend all day selling cheaper. But then the, the other need that they had was there weren't a lot of options for women to get clothing, especially like women's intimates. So we found another company that does women's intimates, partnered with them, and relaunched a micro-franchise on a catalog where the women travel around door-to-door in their community. They, they share the catalogs. The women in their community can tell them what they want out of the catalog. They then send the order back with, the, with payment. They manufacture it, like made to order, basically. And then they they deliver it and take payment. And that one actually has ended up doing doing really, really well, which again is going back to like just understanding our partners and like their needs and like what works for them or, you know, where the where the gaps are in the market. So I love it. Well, hey, thanks for thanks for your time for doing this. So people want to find out more about the fund. Where's the best place? And if they want to follow you on social or anything like that, what's what's the best places for people to connect with you? Yeah. So our website is great. Ugrowthfund.com. We put a lot of information on there about our program, our investment strategy, the companies we're, we're backing and so on and so forth. And then we have an Instagram, you know, at you Growth Fund. That's probably one of the better places to follow us. I post more on that than on my own personal stuff. So, I love it. Thanks so much for listening today to The Jay Davis Show. We'll catch you next time.